The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Welcome, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning to you, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. Uh, a little later, we're going to be joined by Steve Phillip, who is an investment consultant with Zacks Investment Management, uh, and it will, he'll, we'll go over some very important things. You should definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, but Mitch, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on in the markets uh, these days. Obviously, Q3 earnings is a big part of that right now, uh, but what I've noticed is that the mergers. Now, we haven't yeah. seen a lot of IPO activity in 2016, right. but we have seen a ton of, not just a lot of mergers, but also great, great big ones. Um, Anheuser-Busch InBev buying yeah. SAB Miller for $103 billion. Microsoft buying LinkedIn, Dow and DuPont merging. Eight, the most recent one being AT&T buying Warner. Time Warner yeah. for $85.4 billion. This seems like it may be a bearish, uh, have bearish sentiment in the market. Would you... General, generally speaking, the key issue is whether the mergers are being done for stock or for cash. So if the merger is being done for stock, what that's signaling is that the company that's doing the acquisition mm -hmm. is uh, sees their stock as potentially overvalued. So they say, okay, we've got this overvalued stock. What do we do with it? They issue the stock and then they obtain the shares of another company. And what the the game there is that if you have a higher PE company, use stock to acquire a lower PE multiple company. It's accretive to earnings. So you have so you have companies that the stock the, the company is trading at 25 times uh, earnings, and they go out. It's a tech company, and they're like, "How do we grow?" They're like, well, let's just issue stock and buy a company that's that's uh, trading at 18 times earnings. Right. And because we issue stock and our stock's worth 25 and we buy it and it's only worth 18, uh, that net effect causes earnings per share to increase. Because I see value in that. And we, we try and adjust for that when looking at earnings estimate revisions. So we don't want to own companies that are causing earnings estimate revisions to go up through stock for stock mergers. But generally speaking, if you start seeing an increase in stock mergers, it's a bearish sign for the market. Right. Now, these mergers tend to be debt mergers. When I say debt, they tend with the company, the acquiring company is issuing debt, and then they're giving some of the debt uh, to, uh, they're using the cash from the debt to acquire the company. But generally speaking, as you see merger and acquisition activity increase, it's not a good sign in terms of sentiment because it means that the corporate managers are feeling comfortable in the given economic environment. So AT&T doesn't go out and, uh, you know, propose merging with Time Warner when they're dealing with all sorts of issues on their own in terms of their organic revenue growth. When they start seeing their organic revenue growth being relatively stable, 
then they're like, well, how are we going to grow? We're not we're not getting enough wireless subscribers. It's a competitive business. Let's go out and buy uh, Time Warner. Now, in the AT&T deal, I'm, I'm kind of uh, I'm relatively negative uh, around it, effectively. The deal going through or the deal when it happens is not a, not a good thing for the we, company? We own a lot of shares of at and We own about like one point over 1.7 million shares of AT&T right. at the firm. And so we're, we're a reasonably sized uh, shareholder. And uh, I just don't think it's beneficial to shareholders. I, I'm not positive it will go through. Well, and that's, we're sort, that's of, we're sort sure. of waiting to see how the effect of the deal on uh, cash flow and uh, potential uh, dividend payments are. I was uh, enthused that when AT&T uh, had their last quarterly earnings, uh, they actually raised their dividend. Uh, but uh, there, are some, there are some issues with the deal that I, I think are not necessarily beneficial to shareholders. All right. Well, the CEO of AT&T said that it was a purely vertical play, meaning right. it wasn't, they weren't buying out a competitor. Right. Um, do you think that has anything that positive bearing on the on the possibility of it of it clearing? The, the fact that it's a vertical play is what what they're essentially saying is AT and T is going to go and buy Time Warner. They're going to pay more money than Time Warner is currently valued at in the marketplace, and for some reason they're able to realize more value from that acquisition. So as a result of buying Time Warner, they're going to be able to either grow their revenue faster, right. or their margins are going to be higher. Okay. Right. Generally speaking, what I what it looks like they're looking to do is to look to grow their revenue stronger. So they're looking for something called a revenue synergy. So they're looking for Company A to acquire AT&T to acquire Time Warner, and they're looking as a result of that for AT&T and Time Warner's combined sales to be greater together, the sales growth, than it is uh, separately. Right. Historically, that is the weakest uh, benefit to a merger occurring. So when a merger occurs, the you know most mergers don't work. Most mergers, the company doing the acquisition overpays for the company that's being acquired. And the reason is it's the same reason that in an art auction, if you've ever been to an art auction or any type of auction, the person buying that piece of artwork has paid more for that artwork than everyone else in the art uh, yeah. bidding process True. thinks it's worth. So the first problem is AT&T paid more money for Time Warner than Apple Board, than Apple thinks it's worth, right. than every private equity firm thinks it's worth, than every other competing, than Verizon thinks it's worth. They paid more money for that company than every other single person evaluating that company. So by definition, they had to overpay. So they paid all this money for this company. How are they going to justify it? They're saying, well, we're going to, we're, when we combine these companies together, we're going to take Time Warner's uh, content and sell it more through AT&T, and then we can sell more of AT&T subscribers uh, on the wireless side. We can create switching costs so it's hard for them uh, to, to leave AT&T for Verizon and other wireless providers. Right. And that sort of synergy is the hardest to materialize in a merger. The synergies that work are cost synergies. The synergies that work are you have one company uh, that is uh, building the same sort of product with the other company. They merge together and they eliminate uh, you know, the majority of the workforce of the acquired company and sure, keep the, the revenue. Right. So the cost synergies are the things that work. Uh, cost synergies work in a horizontal merger when they're providing the same good. So you don't need... Uh, if, if AT&T and Verizon merged or something of that sort, they wouldn't need this, the same double the number of chief technology officers, double the number of salespeople. You would have one salesperson with more activity effectively occurring. So yeah. the, the, the cost synergies work, and they even don't work well enough to justify the higher costs. But the revenue synergies are almost impossible 
for it to materialize. I've been watching mergers for 20 years and the revenue synergies rarely materialize. And so what you're looking at here is something that AT&T is doing because their growth is not strong. But the people owning AT&T stock like us are not owning AT&T because we're looking for very strong growth. We're right. owning it because we're looking for a stable and increasing dividend. Mm-hmm. But if they issue massive debt to give to Time Warner and they give more money to Time Warner than Time Warner, the market is currently spending it, right. and they give more money than everyone else is willing to give, uh, you, you, have a, you have a concern that the stability of the dividend could come under some degree of pressure. And the fact that they're doing this now tells you that their outlook over the next six to 12 months is very, very positive. But they're, they're sacrificing on the altar of growth uh, you know, potential stability. So you have revenue synergies, you have the fact that it puts the dividend uh, potentially not at risk, but it definitely puts more pressure on the, uh, on the credit rating of the company. You have the third issue that if they wanted to create more content, you know, 80 billion, X billions of dollars, they could spend half a billion dollars developing it themselves, develop the content themselves. Yeah, that's what Netflix is doing. And so the reason they're not doing that is because if they do that, their earnings will decrease right. and it'll put pressure on the stock. So it's easier for them to just go out and say, let's raise 40 billion dollars in debt. Let's spend 40 billion dollars in stock and uh, go out and uh, buy a company than to say, let's just incrementally do it. But I guarantee you that for $80 billion, you could probably duplicate all the content that Time Warner is currently, I mean, Game of Thrones only costs so much to produce. Well, right. It's not, it's not in the billions of dollar range. So, and then the third thing is that what, you know, their, their, their revenue synergy ideas, which is that, well, we're gonna have people watch their shows and when they get on their device, we can see where they are, and we can tell that the people who like uh, watching CNN like to go to the bowling alley, so we will send them ads about bowling balls. Right. All this could be done contractually. So they could just contractually enter into agreements with all sorts of content providers and say, we're gonna track, you know, you're gonna put your content on our uh, wireless service, and we're gonna track when they watch the content. And as a result, we can then help you target ads. More like so that, Groupon does. Yeah, or exactly, something. or something like that. I mean, not like Groupon, but it, the, the point is that anything they're trying to accomplish can be accomplished contractually. And all the issues they have contractually still exist, which is that if HBO is given to AT&T Wireless for free and not given to the cable companies, they lose the revenue that the cable company is paying for HBO. Right. And so it doesn't, it doesn't address any of the conflicts that would occur, and it doesn't necessarily help any of the revenue expansion uh, to materialize. So you, you have these sort of issues occurring. And then the final thing that's going on is I don't think people are watching TV the way uh, the way they used to. Right. So it's, it's, it's dependent on a very linear way of watching television, which is that you sit down, you pick a show, you watch it on TV, then you go and you get on your device and you continue watching it. So you get you you go to your the, the kids' baseball game and then you pull up your iPad and maybe you watch the kids' game, but then you watch the rest of your show. And I think what's really happening is sort of a decentralized content production as content becomes decentralized. So what's really happening is people on their devices aren't trying to watch sequential shows that are occurring. They're just consuming random stuff from YouTube and from this uh, source and this other source. So it's dependent on the newer generation, the millennials, watching TV the same way that the people running AT&T and Time Warner 
believe that they watch TV. And that's changed. They, right. They're not looking to say, I want to watch my HBO show continually on this thing. and that. They're saying, okay, I'm going to get in the car and we do a search and whatever comes up, my friend's sending me something on Snapchat, my other friend's sending me some video on Facebook, they'll watch those videos. So what they're doing is they're just looking at their Facebook feed and seeing what's being pulled in from the social network and watching that. They're not interested in trying to say, listen, we only want to watch. So for all these reasons... You know, we're kind of negative on this. I'm kind right. of negative strategically and just from a financial standpoint, I, 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 I don't see the benefit uh, to shareholders. And in my mind, it's a very clear indication of sort of empire building, of AT&T's management wanting to expand their empire, uh, take the $80 billion and return it to shareholders, buy back shares, yeah. or invest it in R&D and try and find a technological advancement in wireless. Don't go out and buy random content at the same time that content is becoming completely decentralized. Right. At the same time, content costs are, are going up dramatically. So I don't know. That's maybe too well, much well, no, uh, for no, AT&T. I, but I've been thinking about this quite a bit because you know we, we're overweighted on AT&T relative to the Russell 1000 value by about 0.9%. In the uh, in our large cap value strategy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, you know, our assets are, are going up very very nicely. We we just hit above uh, four point seven uh, billion dollars in assets under management. Very good. So we we probably own a, a little bit over uh, eighty million dollars uh, in AT and T stock. Mm. And uh, you know what we really are are looking for in terms of the AT and T investment is for a dividend that's going to be sustained and not uh, going to continue to be raised over time. And this deal makes it harder, and I don't think it causes revenue growth or earnings growth to accelerate more uh, than than you would if you just took if we took eighty uh, we took eighty million dollars we got rid of a third of it and we went out and bought uh, Time Warner stock. And we do own Time Warner stock in some of our large cap growth strategies, and we have benefited from the increase there. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're talking the deal is a year away. There's all this regulatory scrutiny, which is unusual. That's what I wanted to get yeah, to. Yeah. Okay. As well. So uh, well, well, because because no, 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 I'm be, sorry. No, that's fine. I'll, okay. I'll hear you talk. But well, I wanted to say that this is something you touched on earlier. If you're going to, if you're AT&T and you're going to keep this content from Time Warner, yeah. which is expansive, yeah. from the uh, cable providers, that seems like it's something that the regulators might throw up a red flag about and, and because you're, you're, you're cutting it off. And then there, is, there was a deal between Comcast and NBC Universal about five years ago. And in that, they made a bunch of different uh, constraints. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I guess it's possible that, right, it's going to take a long time. They're going to go through a lot of paperwork to figure this out. And it may, at the end of the day, still not go through. You have to work under the, the belief that Time Warner is already maximizing the value of their content. You'd think so they would be, it, right? Right. So the fact that if AT&T says we don't want to provide it to this person, that's not beneficial uh, to Time Warner effectively. So it's, it's, it, it, you also have a deal that, that there's a lot of political activity around because it goes to the heart of, of you know, sort of everyone's cable bill effectively. And so you, you, you're going to see uh, some pressure on the deal uh, but but generally speaking, I, I don't see it uh, as something that is very likely to get done. I would say there's a 50-50 shot of it occurring, and I, I, I just don't see the revenue synergies. I, I, don't, right. I, I don't see – I can see how it's interesting to be vertically integrated, but I don't see how the combined entity grows revenue faster uh, than each of them does on their own. 
And, uh, you know, I, I, it's kind of like you have this company that invented transistors years ago. Right. And now they're they're buying science fiction shows. And it's like, uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a sad testament to what's going on somewhat in American business that you, you used to have technological innovation on a very grand scale where profitability was invested in research and development. And now it's it's they're buying content. Because uh, they're, think, they're thinking that the content is going to be decentralized. Right. So if the content's decentralized, they could buy the content on their own. I, I don't see why they have to purchase the share. But the larger issue is the reason these mergers are occurring is because there's, gr there's a greater sense of optimism uh, amongst uh, corporate managers. And so you don't go and take uh, you know, a third of your market value and put it into a, a new uh, an acquisition unless you're very comfortable with the with the with the stability of the business and so as a result i would expect uh there to be increased spending on uh, capital equipment increased hiring mm -hmm. and in that way it's generally good the the way it's bad in aggregate is when you the the, the optimism tends to peak at a time when the market tends to peak so they're not optimistic in 2009 they're optimistic after the bull market has run and you're near your highs. Uh, but again, I'm not seeing, and, and then, you know, I've been talking about how there's been low IPO activity and, and sure enough, now all of a sudden there's the Snapchat's going to try and go public and sure. this one's going to try and go public. Uber, so maybe, Uber right. maybe. So you're seeing more IPO activity. All of this is consistent with the market, which is uh, sort of uh, going up. Uh, but uh, my anticipation is that, um, I, I think you, you hold AT&T, we're slightly overweighted, we'll probably continue to hold it and wait and see how everything is sort of panning out. Okay, very good. And we're in um, we're in Q3 earnings season right now, and it looks like we may be out of the earnings recession. I I think so, and I think that's why you're starting to see the merger activity uh, Oh, okay, up. because so, you're feeling that that's they're, they've maximized it, now they kind of have to join together too. They have not spent years, large corporations in the U.S. have not spent years reinvesting in their businesses. Their growth is going to occur through acquisition. Right. So they're going to acquire other businesses. And it's this general trend over time in the reduction of the number of publicly traded companies. Okay. Because they're, they're being consolidated. There's consolidation. Uh, and and I, I think that trend is going to is going to effectively continue. You're also looking for an interest rate move, perhaps in December. I think if the interest rate move occurs, you're going to see some downward pressure on the market. Uh, but if it occurs because the economy is picking up, right, uh, you're going to effectively uh, see uh, that be a benefit for the market. Generally, statistically, the market tends to go up in the initial interest rate hikes because the interest rate hikes are occurring because the economy is growing faster than expected. Right. It occurs because the earnings drought has essentially uh, ended. Okay, all right. And we saw we heard from uh, Fed President Bullard saying one increase is probably enough, at least for the time being. So going into 2017, we'd be at what, uh, 50 basis points. Right, they, they want to signal that they're willing to raise interest rates, but with the dollar again beginning to strengthen, that uh, chokes off growth. It makes it harder uh, to sell uh, U.S. goods overseas. You want a weaker dollar, and uh, the lower interest rates are, the weaker the demand for the currency. Right. So the higher interest rates go, the more there's demand for it, especially relative to other currencies. And it puts it definitely puts downward pressure on uh, U.S. multinational sales, essentially. So, yeah. so the Federal Reserve, if they want to run the economy sort of hotter for longer, they're going to kind of lean towards not raising rates. And the, the president of the Federal Reserve really is very cognizant of the fact of low, what the effect is of low unemployment. 
So they want to try and keep unemployment uh, low. They, they, they don't want unemployment to increase. So I think they're going to be reluctant. I think they're going to err on the side of keeping rates lower for longer uh, than raising rates uh, higher and faster. Okay, very good. Let's take a short break okay. there, Mitch. What do you think? That makes uh, sense. We'll, we'll take a sip of water or something. We'll come back after these uh, messages. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Please stay tuned. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Uh, welcome back, listeners of voiceamerica.com's business channel. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm joined again by Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. We're talking about a number of things. Uh, later on, we're going to be joined by Steve Phillip, who is the Investment Consultant with Zacks Investment Management. Uh, so please stay tuned for that. Uh, Mitch, uh, we'd like to talk about headlines. It's how okay. you made the news in this past week. Okay. Uh, you were quoted in thestreet.com, okay. owned by Jim Cramer and receives over 11.4 million visitors a month. Got it. So, what the question was, uh, and we could maybe just go yeah. through this and you maybe give uh, any amendments to, to what you said, ahead of the... Obamacare open enrollment are healthcare ETFs at risk. And uh, I'll just give you the, the, the beginning of what you said, and we'll see if you can take it from there. You said a Trump victory could mean the repeal of Obamacare would cause for plenty of uncertainty in the healthcare sector. Um, and in that event, investors would most likely sell first and ask questions later. That's a pretty good quote right there. Yes. You, you generally, you want, you want uh, gridlock in Washington. You don't want changes occurring uh, you know, at the uh, regulatory level for uh, medical for the medical sector, the more gridlock we have in Washington, the more investors can deploy capital. Uh, investors not going to buy an HMO or a, a medical device company 
uh, if they believe that uh, there's going to be a change and and the 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 sort of uh, guidelines of how that company generates revenue is going to change dramatically. So uh, if you can have a result where you have the president and the house uh, in different parties, that would lead to the most amount of gridlock. And I would say that's the most desirable by investors in the marketplace. Okay. If you see, uh, you know, what, what, what you saw happening a little bit is you saw with, uh, with, with, with the Republican weakness on the national level, it was leading uh, some uh, pundits to believe that they're, they're, the Republicans might lose control of the House. And that put a downward pressure on a lot of drug companies, effectively. Well, if that would put all three... Uh, yeah, branches. all two or well, three, two, right, right, two, right. right, right, and so so there is this concern that if you if if you see too much uh, consolidation in one any one branch of government by any one party, right. uh, it's generally negative, effectively. So I, I think it, it, and it, that's it, because of the unknowns attached to it's that. Because that the, right? It's because of the changes that could occur. Right, you, you have to take a step back and realize that in in all these instances, you're discounting the future value of the dividend payments of the company. Uh, they may not be paying dividends now. Facebook's not paying dividends now. But at some point in the future, they have to start returning uh, profits to shareholders in the in the uh, in the form of dividends. And the present value of the future dividends is what gives the company the stock value. Otherwise, you're just trading pieces of paper back and forth. Right. The only thing that gives it value are the dividends that they pay, and the fact that one investor can acquire the entire company and sort of privatize the earnings stream. So there's a real earnings stream being driven in these instances. And the discounted value of that future earnings stream is what drives the, the company's price. And to the extent that that earnings stream is uh, very, very stable over time. So there's mm -hmm. not a lot of variance into what the earnings are going to be a year out, two years out, three years out, because it's a very stable company. Uh, the, the valuation is going to be higher. Now, if you say there's a 5% chance that X, Y, and Z political event will happen, and as a result, the earnings of the revenue growth of these drug companies are going to be capped uh, because they, they don't want uh, you know drug, price, drug, drug companies gouging the public, you have to incorporate that. So your, your right. expectation for revenue uh, you know, five years from now is a 90% chance of what it is, and a 10% chance it's 20% lower. So as that probability changes over time, the valuation of that stock is going to change. Right. And what you really want to see is, is the least amount of chance of there being uncertainty for that top line revenue number, uh, which would flow then uh, to the earnings and the dividends that the company can generate. Okay. Well, going back to that scenario with Obamacare uh, and the election um, from thestreak.com where yeah. you were uh, quoted it, uh, you said a Clinton victory would expand Obamacare if she's elected. <clears throat> and that would allow more visits before deductibles and tax credits for out-of-pocket out expenses. And so hospitals would then profit from an expansion of Obamacare as more people would be encouraged to get care when it's needed. They would increase demand for HMO services, essentially. Okay. So uh, hospitals, <clears throat> anyone providing medical services, if you see Obamacare increase, there's more coverage, there's more activity, uh, there are more checkups occurring. Uh, there's more demand for that. So I, I would I would tend to agree with that. Uh, but again, if she's not able, if, if, if she, if, if, if the Democrats are not able to increase Obamacare, it's not going to have a, a huge effect. Right, right. Um, well, it seemed like the House was going to be pretty well sewn up, I believe, but the Senate was uh, was in question whether it, it was going it, to... Fall. Right, there's a question, right. So, so what, what's happened recently, the only political effect on the market in the very, very recent last week or so is that the weakness of the Republicans on a national level 
was believed to affect the the down party uh, races, and uh, that caused a, a sell-off in some drug companies and some biotech companies. Right, right. Okay, I want to move to Mitch on the markets. Okay. Before I do, I want to give the phone number and email for uh, to, to contact Zach's Investment Management. If you'd like to speak to a representative about assets uh, for your retirement, you can call 800-245-2943. Uh, you can also, for more information, uh, give us an email at info. I'm sorry, info at zimwealth, Z-I-M, wealth.com, and the website is zimwealth.com as well. Um, so once again, that number, 800-245-2943. You'll get put right through to a representative at Zach's Investment Management. Okay, Mitch, so Mitch on the market. Yes. Uh, money managers are raising cash. Yes. Should you? So in this article that uh, is a weekly uh, that yeah. comes out, uh, money managers have increased cash levels in portfolios to fairly dramatic levels yeah. from 5.5% of assets under management to 5.8% from September to October, I believe that was. Yes. Um, that's, you know, that is a pretty big rise. So what's what's behind this? Uh, well, well you, you are seeing, uh, you know, uh, some degree of uncertainty, but generally speaking, the as cash levels increase, it's a bullish sign uh, from a sentiment perspective. So you want to see a lot of cash on the sidelines uh, because that's an indication that uh, that cash can be deployed if the market starts to go up. So you can think of it like there's this, uh, powder on the side of 5.8% of the total assets invested that's sitting in cash, that's not earning uh, any interest rates. And if the market starts to rally, it'll be self-reinforcing. Right. So if you have the market go up 10%, these managers are going to be like, well, I need to get this cash deployed so I don't trail the market. And it tends to go in. You, you generally see cash levels being a contrarian signal. The lower the cash levels, the worse it is for the market because it's like there's a clamoring to be invested. Mm. Now there's not a clamoring to be invested by professional money managers, and that's actually very positive. They, they tend to get it, uh, they hit it at the wrong times. Okay. And so it, 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 it's relatively positive uh, that you have this cash on the sidelines uh, because the cash has to go to work. The same could be said uh, for the level of cash at corporations. Cash levels and uh, cash equivalents at corporations are higher than they've uh, ever been before. Uh, so what what is Apple going to do? Eventually, they're going to take the, the $200 billion or so odd that they yeah, have in cash. It's quite amazing. And they're, they're going to have to deploy it <clears throat> at some point. Right. They're not going to just keep sitting it there. They're going to they're they're try and hopefully do something that's going to generate. And I think it was very, very positive that Apple said, let's not give $80 billion to Time Warner. They yeah, said, well, it's not. A, so Apple, who has all this cash, said, we're not going to do it. And again, back not to beat a dead horse, AT&T said, let's go ahead and buy it. So again... Yeah. Uh, the, the cash levels by corporations is positive because it has to be deployed. The, uh, the cash levels uh, by uh, money managers is also positive because eventually it has to be deployed. Okay. So what it tells you is that if the market starts to get a spark to the upside uh, because you know interest rates don't rise, all that has to eventually be deployed. And that's going to be a huge benefit uh, to the market going forward. Uh, cash levels are not as strong a uh, sentiment signal as other signals, uh, but generally speaking, it, it's positive. So on the negative hand, we have the increase in merger activity. Right. Uh, but then we have the uh, increased cash levels at both the corporate level and uh, from asset managers in terms of their portfolios. And on both of those, I think uh, the cash levels being higher than normal uh, help valuations of stocks. I mean, if you okay. realize that Apple has, you know, maybe a, a large portion of, the, of their market value or a, a sizable portion of their market value in cash, that's very interesting. Right. And so that tells you that the valuations might be a little bit lower 
than what uh, they would historically be because the PE multiple is uh, looking at the earnings of that of those companies and the price. So the price might be reflecting uh, increased cash levels, which isn't, you know, it's mostly in non-financial companies that you're seeing this increase in cash levels. Uh, but again, eventually that has to be deployed. And I, I see that as a positive for the market. Right. In this, we've seen some headlines, though, that are maybe kind of setting off some alarm bells for people. It's the highest level of cash held in portfolios since 9-11 and the weeks following the Brexit votes. That's spooky sounding data uh, that tempts investors to react defensively or to, to follow the herd. But you're right. saying don't follow the herd. No, you can't. The, the fact that the cash levels are getting high is very beneficial. So if you think about Brexit in 9-11, 9-11 less so, but Brexit, that would have been a very, very good time to, to invest. So right. there, there tends to be an overreaction to risk by portfolio managers in terms of raising cash levels, not an underreaction. So when, when cash levels are up, it means the bad news has already been reflected, that they've already adjusted to it. And again, it's, it's the same thing I've said before, when there's a lot of negative sentiment, it's easier to surprise to the upside, right. because like in 2009, you don't have to have tremendous things occurring, you just have to have them better than expectations. Right, it's very interesting. It's, it seems like a contrarian move, but it makes perfect sense when you say on the other side of it, if there's a lot of exuberance in the market, that's the time where you start That's the time, right. If, if, if the portfolio managers are saying, I can't get my cash to work fast enough, as soon as money comes in, I have to buy a stock because they're all going up. Uh, that, that's 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 negative. So right. here they're saying, listen, I don't, I'm not sure they're going to go up. I'm not sure prices are going to rise. Let me be defensive. And 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 again, when everyone is defensive, it's easier to surprise uh, to the upside, and you're going to get something that wasn't expected and cause the defensiveness to be a, a more aggressive outlook. And and uh, I fully anticipate the market to do relatively well over the next 12 months, uh, simply because you have this statistical process where when interest rates are being uh, raised by the Federal Reserve, it usually is because you're, you're seeing earnings uh, pick up and you're seeing the economy pick up. And right. that's exactly what we're starting to see. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so there's also Mitch's mailbox, which is from okay. last week. And there was a question from a client uh, and they said, Mitch, I noticed last quarter that emerging markets in countries outside the U.S performed much better than U.S. stocks. Yeah. Is this the start of a new trend or just an anomaly? They've been under pressure for a while, so they're very depressed. Okay. They're very much and tied mostly to about mostly the emerging markets. So they're, they're depressed in terms of the differential in valuations uh, between the U.S. market and the emerging market. They're highly tied uh, to more basic material old line industries, which have also been under pressure, such as energy, uh, basic materials. Uh, but they're doing well because the, the, the valuations are so low right. and the uh, worst case scenario is not materializing. I would generally anticipate over the next uh, period of time that the international markets would do relatively well. But over long periods of time, my, my belief is that the U.S. market will outperform these emerging market uh, companies over time. Uh, we have, generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, around 15% of client, uh, you know, high net worth assets uh, deployed in international uh, exposure. And of that, we have about a third uh, that's uh, that's in the emerging market and about two thirds in the developed market. Okay. I'm comfortable with that. I would not be increasing the emerging market. The emerging market has this issue that uh, you, you have the possibility of something very bad occurring at some time in the future due to a political event or something of that sort. So if you're buying, uh, let me let me just say, you're buying Brazilian equities. Right. Yes, they're doing well. 
Uh, yes, India, the stocks in India are doing well. Yes, Chinese stocks are, are doing relatively well. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some ETFs in some of these areas that, that are uh, performing very nicely. Uh, but, but the issue is, is it possible? Can you come up with a scenario where everything just reverses itself? And you absolutely, uh, you absolutely can, uh, where there's a political change, there's a political event, and uh, the, the assets are repatriated by, the, you know, you have essentially what happened in Cuba. Cuba was a very nice growing economy, and they, they just took everything away. Now, I'm not saying you're going to have a return of that sort of craziness, uh, but you do have the possibility of just sort of large disruption. Right. If you own a lot of Chinese stocks, can you go in and change the way the Chinese management is working uh, so that you are being paid a higher dividend of the earnings? Absolutely not. I don't, I don't know think, that you're going to do anything. I, I don't think you're going to. I don't. I don't think you're going to get any luck at all doing that. So uh -huh. it's like if, if you have a British company and the British company has earnings and it's not performing well, you can acquire a majority of the shares. I mean, not maybe not you personally, but uh, an institution can, mm -hmm. and make changes and either liquidate the company, sell the assets, uh, change what the dividend policy, so that more of the earnings are going to the shareholders. To do that in the emerging market, I don't think can be done. Okay. I mean, I mean, yes, I'm sure there's some legal way you can put pressure on British comp uh, on Brazilian companies, uh, but uh, logistically, I, I don't think that you're ever going to be able to put any real uh, pressure on on these on these uh, companies when the, the governments themselves uh, default on the debt and all, all this stuff. With they they will just ignore their obligations. So you have. It gets back to this concept of what gives a stock value. And we talked about how it's the present value of the future dividends that that stock pays. Right. And so you either have to get paid those dividends or you have to find a way to get all those, those earnings out of that company. Right. And so that is harder to do in the emerging market because there's no sort of rule of law that enforces shareholder rights. Right. So I don't hear of many activist emerging market managers. Because you can't, you can't, there's no such thing. And so as a result, over long periods of time, you have to question what are the dividend payments you really are going to get uh, from Chinese equities? What are the dividend payments you're truly going to get from Brazilian equities? Not what will someone pay for the paper of the Chinese equity now because China's a huge developing market, but what as an investor, as a foreign investor in Chinese equity, uh, what do you... What's really going to happen in terms of the dividend payments? Would you suggest a better play might be buying U.S. companies? I like that, U.S. That, that does I like that do business. I uh, have much better ideas. You look at the companies in the uh, in the largest uh, U.S. companies, and you're seeing forty to fifty percent of the revenue overseas, mm -hmm. and that's in developed markets and emerging markets. And there, I believe, uh, if Coca-Cola is successful, uh, we just bought Coca-Cola in our large cap value strategy. Okay. If Coca-Cola is successful, uh, continuing to, to to grow their products. You're, it's going to benefit U.S. shareholders. You're not going to have an instance where the management in the U.S. Uh, takes advantage of the shareholder, whereas I think if you invested in a Chinese uh, beverage company, there, you, you, you may never get a dividend payment, and all the benefit might accrue to the uh, management of those uh, of that of that company. Sure. The rules might change at a the moment. The rules might change at a moment. So it's like, generally speaking, as a shareholder, think of it like, 
you, you're entering into a, you know, a, a business with the managers of that company, it, it's better to be in the U.S. or a developed market where the uh, interaction between those parties is, 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 is established both culturally and, and legally. Uh, you try and do the same thing in China, I, I'm not sure what would, uh, what would happen. Right. Okay. We're going to leave it there and take another short break. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. Uh, we're going to be with Steve Phillip after the break. Please stay tuned. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back uh, to voiceamerica.com's business channel. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery with Mitch Zacks, the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. And for this segment, we're joined also by Steve Phillip, Investment Consultant with Zacks Investment Management. Uh, good day to you, Steve. You too. Thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, sure, sure. My pleasure. So we talk a lot about you know, millennials. We talk a lot about uh, other uh, different groups of, of people who are uh, potential investors, baby boomers. They're beginning to retire. So I think our segment here, we want to kind of focus on uh, something that Zach's Investment Management put out uh, not too long ago called Finding Your Way, Four Simple Steps to Managing Your Retirement Assets. And but before we uh, we discuss this, I wanted to give out the number for people who would like to call in to talk to a representative at Zach's Investment Management. You can dial 1-800-245-2943. Well, I guess you wouldn't dial that, but anyway, 1-800-245-2943. Or you can email us at info at zimwealth.com. Okay, Steve Phillip, uh, please uh, give us a little bit uh, of, a, of a background on here on what we're talking about for, uh, for the Zim platform. Well, thanks, Mark. I, I think at this point we really want to discuss uh, retirement in the context of the, of the bubble of potential retirees coming uh, down through, the, through our uh, system right now. Sure. And, and I'll have Mitch talk on this uh, a little bit. But essentially, the, the baby boom generation is getting towards retirement. They're inching that way. The for maybe the first few years of the, what's considered the post-war baby boom generation is, is starting to actually uh, slip into retirement and take 
uh, Social Security, etc. Uh, but for for these baby boomers, Mitch, uh, these are uh, folks that are in their peak earning years and and retirement savings years. And I want you to touch on that bubble and what it means to us, the markets, and for uh, retirement in general. Well, okay. So there there are a couple. Uh, as you see uh, more and more people wanting to retire you're probably going to see a slightly larger portion of their assets maybe going to the fixed income world. And so it could cause an overall uh, downward pressure on interest rates because the demand for bonds increases. So the traditional wisdom is that, you know, as someone is is earning uh, income, they can bear more flexibility in their equity exposure. They can have more equity exposure. Once that extra income uh, stops or once their income stops uh, coming, uh, they, they tend to be a little bit more conservative. Even if it, they don't have to statistically, there's a psychological uh, effect of trying to search uh, for yield. So you would, if you think about what type of companies, what type of financial instruments a sort of retiree would desire or would want, uh, those, these are, you would think they would want more fixed income. They would want more larger cap uh, value stocks that are paying an income. They'd want more stable companies over time. There'd be less of a demand for smaller cap companies, less of a demand for small cap growth companies. And that's exactly what we're kind of seeing over time. So you'd, it, the demographic change isn't huge, but it's large enough that you're going to see an increased demand for yield. And this demand for yield is not going to abate. It's going to continue to increase. And the only thing that's going to get rid of it is really if you see interest rates start to rise uh, dramatically. So it sounds like they're going to face most of these retirees some serious challenges uh, ahead. A lot of it is psychological. So a lot of it is the retiree saying, well, uh, to retire and live my life as I want to, I need to generate a 5% uh, annualized uh, rate of return. And, uh, you know, the issue is they say, well, I want to get that in the fixed income market. And whether a retiree can really become, uh, you know, pushed in the wrong direction is if they say, well, I need this 5% annualized rate of return uh, to successfully retire. And then they start looking for that in the fixed income market. And they look around and they see the 10-year treasury at uh, 1.9%. Uh, and they say, well, to get the 5%, I really have to go farther and farther out on the yield curve and I have to go farther and farther out on the credit curve and they wind up looking at like something crazy like a non-traded REIT where the person says well you can get a five a six percent rate of return by investing in the mezzanine debt of this real estate and and uh, those are interesting investments but they're they're not they, they shouldn't they well, what should be happening is that expected rate of return should be met through a mixture of equity and debt and the retiree has to realize that you're going to get that rate of return through capital appreciation as opposed to, uh, you know, interest payment. So the retiree says, well, I don't want to lose any of my money. I've worked very hard to get to this point, but I absolutely need a 5% rate of return on that investment. And that doesn't exist in the world. And the danger is that that right retiree keeps searching for that. And eventually they're led to an instrument where they say, yes, we will uh, give you a 5, a 7% rate of return and uh, we'll protect the principal. And, and the answer is that that investment doesn't exist in this interest rate environment. So, what, what so, so, so there's risk. There's principal risk. And the problem is you don't see the principal risk the same way you would see it in the market. In the market, you say, well, I, I have this portfolio of, of high yielding large cap value stocks. It's generating a 3.3% annualized uh, dividend yield. I need a 5%. 
well, I, I just saw the, the portfolio value fall 5%. Uh, you know, I'm never going to get it. Maybe it'll come back up. Uh, so, so you're exposed to this risk of principal movement all the time. And, and that's what you need to bear to make that 5% rate of return. Instead, they say, well, I've got, uh, I, I've invested in the mezzanine debt of this non-traded REIT and they're promised me a 7% return. And look, they've paid it for six quarters. And then the seventh quarter, it, it, it doesn't materialize. And so the risk is not as apparent, but it's just as there, if not even higher uh, than the risk you would have in the equity market. So what, what retirees have to do is they have to mix equity and debt in such a way that they can hit the expected rate of return and understand because equity is involved in that allocation, uh, it's, it's not going to be a guaranteed rate of return. But by the same token, if they can re- if they can hold that portfolio for a long period of time, uh, there's a very good chance statistically that 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 the equities will outperform or will perform well enough to generate that uh, that targeted rate of return. That's as long as that targeted rate of return is below the expected rate of return of equities. I mean, if they're if they're showing up and they're saying, "Listen, I want a 15% annualized rate of return," okay. you're you're not going to be able to find that in this in this sort of environment. But if if you're coming in, you're saying, "Well," I need a 9% annualized rate of return. I would say, well, maybe bonds might do 2 to 3%. Uh, maybe equities might do 9%. Uh, so if I if I do a 50-50 mix of equity and debt, I should be at about a, a 5.5-6% annualized rate of return. And at that rate of return, if, if you're generating a 6% annualized rate of return and you're removing 3% of the portfolio every year for your living expenses, you're keeping up with inflation. So 20 years from now, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have the same purchasing power of your portfolio. And where retirees really run to issues is, one, they search for too high a return and they look for a totally risk-free rate of return that's very high and it doesn't exist and they're led to products and strategies that don't do well. And uh, the other way that they really run into issues is, uh, is sort of the frog in the uh, frying pan, which is that they keep looking uh, for fixed income. They refuse to take any risk at all. And uh, it, what happens is the purchasing power of those assets just increases, uh, uh, decreases over time. So if you're if you're generating, if you put 100% of your assets in uh, fixed income and you take 3% out of it, not only does you know, you're gonna you're, you're gonna lose 1% uh, to 2% of your value each year of your nominal value, but at the same time that's happening, prices are going up. So after 10 years, you're like, well, I have 90% of my portfolio left, but that buys. Uh, you know, 20 or 30 percent less goods. And so there really is an issue over time uh, with both those problems. It's either uh, lo- looking for return without bearing any risk or just being total, uh, totally oblivious to what happens over long periods of time if no risk is, is born effectively. Well, we see that a lot. I mean, uh, on my on my particular side, I think one of the challenges we have in interacting with clients and people like yourself is setting expectations properly. I mean, we all want 15% return with zero risk, but your illiquid read example, you know, is the perfect example. They chase You'll get it for a couple quarters and then you won't. That's it. You can't get out. You can't get out and you will not get a total rate of return that's higher than the market. And the issue is the market gives you this total rate of return, but it exposes you to all this daily uh, volatility. If you can ignore the daily volatility, 
go to the beach and look at your portfolio every year, every two years, you're going to be in a much better uh, space than you are trying to follow it on a daily basis effectively. Sounds like a half psychologist, half money manager. Uh, the, the, psychology is, the psychology away. is the key. If, if people could invest in the equity markets, ignore the fluctuations, whether they're <laughs> retired or earning money, that probably is, uh, from an expected rate of return standpoint, the best that can happen. And what you saw is you saw all these large pension funds searching for an alternative. And uh, up until 2006, private equity looked tremendous returns, venture capital, tremendous returns. Since 2006, the returns have been less than the market. So they've, they've run around, they find a hedge fund, they find this private equity fund, they find this venture capital fund. And after that became in vogue, it ceased to return because these areas of the market are zero-sum gains games. They're, they're, you, you, if, you, if someone is winning, someone is losing, and in aggregate, everyone can't be winning. The only non-zero-sum game out there, and I shouldn't call it a game, but the only non-zero-sum investment out there is really being long equities. And the reason is what Mark was talking about is that earnings are going to grow. And if you start to see earnings grow, and the earnings grow 20 to 30 percent, the pie is getting larger for everyone over time. Uh, private equity, as more and more private equity firms get out there, they keep competing for the same deals, and uh, their rate of return tends to decrease. Well, I mean, we're all facing these challenges, but I mean, the, the choice between uh, uh, chasing yield, chasing return, yeah. and illiquidity uh, on the other side, what's good for the Ford Foundation may not necessarily be good for all of uh, mom and dad as they're trying to save up for retirement here and, and, and you know, get the kids through college. The simpler, the, the more plain vanilla, the pure, purer the investment process over the last 10 years, the better it's done. So the people who uh, were running foundations and just said, listen, I want to try and have an equity and debt mix, 80% equity, 20% fixed income, and just try and gain exposure to the U.S. equity markets are the ones who perform the best. And it's the ones who tried to get very, very sophisticated. And they all tried to get sophisticated at the same time. It, it, you understand what I'm saying? So they all tried. They all started chasing the same asset classes at the same time. And it was all in response to what happened in uh, 2000 and 2008. So they're sitting there in 2009. They're saying, well, equities have just done horribly for 10 years and uh, we need to find something else. Let's go into uh, this hedge fund. Let's do this private equity. Let's buy timber. Let's buy real assets. And that level of diversification has not worked because, again, it's when everyone starts doing the same thing, it tends to crowd out the rate of return. So when, 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 all, when the Yale endowment was the only one doing this and all the other people were not, all the other endowment managers, it worked very well. But as soon as everyone starts adopting the same strategy, the rate of the return decreases. So it's like a, the pure, simple, straightforward investing strategy that is our philosophy will work over time, which is to allocate to equities, own the underlying equities, allocate to fixed income, if possible, own the underlying bonds, Right. Hold the bonds as a laddered bond portfolio to maturity uh, will generate a greater rate of return over longer periods of time than running around and trying to chase esoteric investments uh, that are zero-sum gains, where if someone's making money on the, the mezzanine private REIT, you know, someone is losing money, and you just can't get that rate of return. So you, you, you understand that in equities, if you can invest and ignore the fluctuations, you can probably double your money every uh, 10 years is, is my guess. You, you would expect maybe a 7% annualized rate of return at minimum, and uh, at that level of return, you would you would double your, your investment every 10 years. 
Now, over that time of period, it goes up and down. But if we can just get investors to see the long term and stay focused on the long term, I think it will do very well. And that's really what the baby boomers need to do effectively. Great. Well, I, I want to tie this back into the uh, four ways that we're going to okay. help simplify this process for people, because these are critical decisions for people. Right. They're, yeah. they're, they're looking at their life savings, and they're all trying to chase the same sort of decisions. Um, and I think the important thing is to uh, make it as simple as possible. Start by determining your personal balance sheet. Figure out what your expenses are, what your sources yep. of income, Social Security, pensions, annuities, uh, IRA distributions, etc., and, uh, and then go to the other side and uh, make sure you've got both sides of this balance sheet, personal balance sheet, yeah. uh, known. Once you do that, then you can start taking a look at those sorts of returns you discussed, yeah. what you're going to need to actually accomplish a successful retirement with all of the other discretionary things you want to do, travel, etc. So we're structured here at Zach's just to help uh, retirement savers and retirees uh, take advantage of these challenges and meet them head on. And uh, I think, you know, I you're very modest and you won't speak about right. this, but I, I know we have at least five strategies that are uh, ranked in the top 5% by Morningstar, which if you don't know who Morningstar is, they're um, a nationally recognized third-party uh, money management evaluation service. Right. And, and that ranks all of money managers amongst their peers. And we have, we have, five of these strategies that have done very, very well. well so, go ahead. We're doing very well. I mean, the, the key issue is if we're doing our job correctly, not only are we uh, hopefully outperforming the benchmarks uh, through our management strategies, but we're also uh, having the people at the firm serve as the chief financial officer uh, for an individual. Just like a firm has a chief financial officer, the individual needs a chief financial officer to make sure that they're uh, that they're growing where they need to grow uh, to provide for their retirement. And if we're doing our job correctly, we're serving as that. And if we're doing that, we're keeping our clients and keeping them happy. That's a good place to end it. Mitch yep. Zacks, Steve Phillip, thank you very much Thanks for your for time, us. gentlemen. Uh, we'll be back next week with The Steady Investor. Please come back and join us then. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for?